Welcome to Unit 4, Research Design. In Unit 4, we start to consider the various designs that you could choose um, for any research proposal. And in uh, Unit 4 here, we have Chapter 5 of our textbook that explains and highlights the various research designs, as well as a presentation by Dr. Underwood. I'm talking about uh, a bit more into some of the particular pieces of a research design. So I'm going to ask you to sit back, relax, um, enjoy a chapter from our text as well as the presentation from Dr. Underwood. And then you'll have another problem sheet to work on as well as our quiz. Um, the problem sheet is really looking at the purpose statement. So it's problem sh sheet three and it's for you to start thinking about the proposal that you will um, present for our course and what would be the, the purpose and a few of the pieces that um, get to the purpose statement. Um, for that research design. Chapter 5, Research Design. Research design is a comprehensive plan for data collection in an empirical research project. It is a blueprint for empirical research aimed at answering specific research questions or testing specific hypotheses and must specify at least three processes. Number one, the data collection process, number two, the instrument development process, and number three, the sampling process. The instrument development and sampling processes are described in the next two chapters, and the data collection process, which is often loosely called research design, is introduced in this chapter and is described in further detail in chapters 9 through 12. Broadly speaking, data collection methods can be broadly grouped into two categories, positivist and interpretive. Positivist methods, such as laboratory experiments and survey research, are aimed at theory or hypotheses testing, while interpretive methods, such as action research and ethnography, are aimed at theory building. Positivist methods employ a deductive approach to research, starting with a theory and testing theoretical postulates using empirical data. In contrast, interpretive methods employ an inductive approach that starts with data and tries to derive a theory about the phenomenon of interest from the observed data. Oftentimes, these methods are incorrectly equated with quantitative and qualitative research. Quantitative and qualitative methods refer to the type of data being collected, quantitative data involving numeric scores, metrics, and so on, while qualitative data includes interviews, observations, and so forth and analyzed. So this could be using quantitative techniques such as regression or qualitative techniques such as coding. Positivist research uses predominantly quantitative data but can also use qualitative data. Interpretive research relies heavily on qualitative data but can sometimes benefit from including quantitative data as well. Sometimes, joint use of qualitative and quantitative data may help generate unique insight into a complex social phenomenon that are not available from either types of data alone, and hence, mixed-mode designs that combine qualitative and quantitative data are often highly desirable. Key Attributes of a Research Design The quality of research designs can be defined in terms of four key design attributes, internal validity, external validity, construct validity, and statistical conclusion validity. Internal validity, also called causality, examines whether the observed change in a dependent variable is indeed caused by a corresponding change in hypotheses independent variable, and not by variables extraneous to the research context. Causality requires three conditions. Number one, covariation of cause and effect. For example, if a cause happens, then effect also happens. And if cause does not happen, effect does not happen. Number two, temporal precedence. Cause must precede effect in time. Three, no plausible alternative explanation or spurious correlation. Certain research designs, such as laboratory experiments, are strong in internal validity by virtue of their ability to manipulate the independent variable, or the cause, via a treatment and observe the effect, the dependent variable, of that treatment after a certain point in time, while controlling for the effects of extraneous variables. 
Other designs, such as field surveys, are poor in internal validity because of their inability to manipulate the independent variable, the cause, and because cause and effect are measured at the same point in time, which defeats temporal precedence, making it equally likely that the expected effect might have influenced the expected cause rather than the reverse. Although higher in internal validity compared to other methods, laboratory experiments are by no means immune to threats of internal validity and are susceptible to history, testing, instrumentation, regression, and other threats that are discussed later in the chapter on experimental designs. Nonetheless, different research designs vary considerably in their respective level of internal validity. External validity, or generalizability, refers to whether the observed associations can be generalized from the sample to the population. Population validity, or to other people, organizations, context, or time. This we call ecological validity. For instance, can results drawn from a sample of financial firms in the United States be generalized to the population of financial firms, or to other firms within the United States? Survey research where data is sourced from a wide variety of individuals, firms, or other units of analysis tends to have broader generalizability than laboratory experiments where artificially contrived treatments and strong control over extraneous variables render the findings less generalizable to real-life settings where treatments and extraneous variables cannot be controlled. The variation in internal and external validity for a wide range of research designs are shown in Figure 5.1. Some researchers claim that there is a trade-off between internal and external validity. Higher external validity can only come at the cost of internal validity and vice versa. But this is not always the case. Research designs, such as field experiments, longitudinal field surveys, and multiple case studies have higher degrees of both internal and external validities. Personally, I prefer research designs that have reasonable degrees of both internal and external validities. For example, those that fall within the cone of validity shown in Figure 5.1. But this should not suggest that designs outside this cone are any less useful or valuable. Researchers' choice of designs is ultimately a matter of their personal preference and competence and the level of internal and external validity they desire. Construct validity examines how well a given measurement scale is measuring the theoretical construct that is it is expected to measure. Many constructs used in social science research, such as empathy, resistance to change, and organizational learning are difficult to define, much less measure. For instance, construct validity must assure that a measure of empathy is indeed measuring empathy and not compassion, which may be difficult since these constructs are somewhat similar in meaning. Construct validity is assessed in po positivist research based on correlational or factor analysis of pilot test data, as described in the next chapter. Statistical conclusion validity examines the extent to which conclusions derived using a statistical procedure is valid. For example, it examines whether the right statistical method was used for hypothesis testing, whether the variables used meet the assumptions of that statistical test, such as sample size or distributional requirements, and so forth. Because interpretive research designs do not employ statistical test, statistical conclusion validity is not applicable for such analysis. The different kinds of validity and where they exist at the theoretical and empirical levels are illustrated in Figure 5.2. Improving internal and external validity. The best research designs are those that can assure high levels of internal and external validity. Such designs would guard against spurious correlations, inspire greater faith in the hypotheses testing, and ensure that the results drawn from a small sample are generalizable to the population at large. Controls are required to assure internal validity or causality of research designs and can be accomplished in four ways. Manipulation, elimination, inclusion, statistical control, and randomization. In manipulation, the researcher manipulates the independent variables in one or more levels called treatments and compares the treatments uh, against a control group where subjects do not receive the treatment. Treatments may include a new drug or different dosage of drug for treating a medical condition, uh, a teaching style for students, and so forth. 
This type of control is achieved in experimental or quasi-experimental designs, but not in non-experimental designs, such as surveys. Note that if subjects cannot distinguish adequately between different levels of treatment manipulations, their responses across treatments may not be different, and manipulation would fail. The elimination technique relies on eliminating extraneous variables by holding them constant across treatments, such as by restricting a study to a single gender or a single socioeconomic status. In the inclusion technique, the role of extraneous variables is considered by including them in the research design and separately eliminating their effects on the dependent variable, such as via factorial designs where one factor is gender, male versus female. Such technique allows for greater generalizability, but also requires substantially larger samples. In statistical control, extraneous variables are measured and used as covariates during the statistical testing process. Finally, the randomization technique is aimed at canceling out the effects of extraneous variables through a process of random sampling. If it can be assured that these effects are of random or non-systematic nature. Two types of randomization are, number one, random selection, where a sample is selected randomly from a population, and number two, random assignment, where subjects selected in a non-random manner are randomly assigned to treatment groups. Randomization also assures external validity, allowing inferences drawn from the sample to be generalized to the population from which the sample is drawn. Note that random assignment is mandatory, where random selection is not possible because of resource or access constraints. However, generalizability across populations is harder to ascertain since populations may differ on multiple dimensions, and you can only control for few of those dimensions. Popular research designs. As noted earlier, research designs can be classified into two categories, positivist and interpretive, depending on the goal of the scientific research. Positivist designs are meant for theory testing, while interpretive designs are meant for theory building. Positivist designs seek generalized patterns based on an objective view of reality, while interpretive designs seek subjective interpretations of social phenomena from the perspectives of the subjects involved. Some popular examples of positivist designs include laboratory experiments, field experiments, field surveys, secondary data analysis, and case research, while examples of interpretive designs include case research, phenomenology, and ethnography. Note that case research can be used for theory building or theory testing, though not at the same time. Not all techniques are suited for all kinds of scientific research. Some techniques, such as focus groups, are best suited for exploratory research. Others, such as ethnography, are best for descriptive research. And still others, such as laboratory experiments, are ideal for explanatory research. Following are brief descriptions of some of these designs. Additional details are provided in chapters 9 through 12. Experimental studies are those that are intended to test cause-effect relationships in a tightly controlled setting by separating the cause from the effect in time, administering the cause to one group of subjects but not to the other group, and observing how the mean effects vary between subjects in these two groups. For instance, if we design a laboratory experiment to test the efficacy of a new drug in treating a certain ailment, we can get a random sample of people affected with that ailment, randomly assign them to one of two groups, administer the drug to subjects in the treatment group, but only give a placebo to the other group. More complex designs may include multiple treatment groups, such as a low versus high dosage of the drug, multiple treatments, such as combining drug administration with dietary in interventions. In a true experimental design, subjects must be randomly assigned between each group. If random assignment is not followed, then the design becomes quasi-experimental. Experiments can be conducted in an artificial or laboratory setting, such as at a university, or in field settings, such as in an organization where the phenomenon of interest is actually occurring. Laboratory experiments allow the researcher to isolate the variables of interest and control for extraneous variables, which may not be possible in field experiments. Hence, inferences drawn from laboratory experiments tend to be stronger in internal validity, but those from field experiments tend to be stronger in external validity. Experimental data is analyzed using quantitative statistical techniques. 
The primary strength of the experimental design is its strong internal validity due to its ability to isolate, control, and intensively examine a small number of variables, while its primary weakness is limited uh, to external generalizability since real life is often more complex than contrived lab settings. Furthermore, if the research does not identify ex ante relevant extraneous variables and control for such variables, such lack of controls may hurt internal validity and may lead to spurious correlations. Field surveys are non-experimental designs that do not control for or manipulate independent variables or treatments, but measure these variables and test their effects using statistical methods. Field surveys capture snapshots of practices, beliefs, or situations from a random sample of subjects in field settings through a survey questionnaire or less frequently through a structured interview. In cross-sectional field surveys, independent and dependent variables are measured at the same point in time, while in longitudinal field surveys, dependent variables are measured at a later point in time than the independent variables. The strengths of field surveys are their external validity their ability to capture and control for a large number of variables, and their ability to study a problem from multiple perspectives, or using multiple theories. However, because of their non-temporal nature, internal validity are difficult to infer, and surveys may be subject to respondent biases, which further hurts internal validity. Secondary data analysis is an analysis of data that has previously been collected and tabulated by other sources. Such data may include data from government agencies, such as employment statistics from the U.S. Bureau of Labor Services or development statistics by country from the United Nations Development Program, data collected by other researchers, or publicly available third-party data, such as financial data from stock markets or real-time auction data from eBay. This is in contrast to most other research designs where collecting primary data for research is part of the researcher's job. Secondary data analysis may be an effective means of research where primary data collection is too costly or infeasible, and secondary data is available at a level of analysis suitable for answering the researcher's questions. The limitations of this design are that the data might not have been collected in a systematic or scientific manner and hence unsuitable for scientific research, since the data was collected for a presumably different purpose. They may not adequately address the research questions of interest to the researcher, and interval validity is problematic if the temporal precedence between cause and effect is unclear. Case research is an in-depth investigation of a problem in one or more real-life settings over an extended period of time. Data may be collected using a combination of interviews, personal observations, and internal or external documents. Case studies can be positivist in nature for hypothesis testing or interpretive for theory building. The strength of this research method is its ability to discover a wide variety of social, cultural, and political factors potentially related to the phenomenon of interest that may not be known in advance. Analysis tends to be qualitative in nature but heavily contextualized and nuanced. However, researcher uh, lack of control may make it difficult to establish causality, and findings from a single case site may not be readily generalized to other case sites. Generalizability can be improved by replicating and comparing the analysis in other cases in a multiple case design. Focus group research is a type of research that involves bringing in a small group of subjects, typically six to 10 people at one location, and having them discuss a phenomenon of interest for a period of one and a half to two hours. The discussion is moderated and led by a trained facilitator who sets the agenda and poses an initial set of questions for participants, makes sure that ideas and experiences of all participants are represented, and attempts to build a holistic understanding of the problem situated uh, based on participants' comments and experiences. Internal validity cannot be established due to lack of controls, and the findings may not be generalized to other settings because of small sample size. Hence, focus groups are not generally used for explanatory or descriptive research, but are more suited for exploratory research. Action research assumes that complex social phenomena are best understood by introducing interventions or actions into those phenomena, and observing those effects of those actions. 
In this method, the researcher is usually a consultant or an organizational member embedded within a social context, such as an organization, who initiates an action, such as a new organizational procedures or new technologies, in response to a real problem, such as declining profitability or operational bottlenecks. The researcher's choice of actions must be based on theory, which should explain why and how such actions may cause the desired change. The researcher then observes the results of that action, modifying it as necessary, while simultaneously learning from the action and generating theoretical insights about the target problem and interventions. The initial theory is validated by the extent to which the chosen action successfully solves the target problem. Simultaneous problem solving and insight generation is the central feature that distinguishes action research from all other research methods and hence, action research is an excellent method for bridging research and practice. This method is also suited for studying unique social problems that cannot be replicated outside that context, but it is also subject to researcher bias and subjectivity, and the generalizability of findings is often restricted to the context where the study was conducted. Ethnography is an interpretive research design inspired by anthropology that emphasizes that research phenomenon must be studied within the context of its culture. The researcher is deeply immersed in a certain culture over an extended period of time, and during that period engages, observes, and records the daily life of the studied culture and theorizes about the evolution and behaviors in that culture. Data is collected primarily via observational techniques, formal and informal interaction with participants in that culture, and personal field notes, while data analysis involves sense-making. The researcher must narrate her experience in great detail so that readers may experience that same culture without necessarily being there. The advantages of this approach are its sensitiveness to the context, the rich and nuanced generate, understanding it generates, and minimal respondent bias. However, this is also an extremely time and resource intensive approach, and findings are specific to a given culture and less generalizable to other cultures. Selecting research designs. Given the above multitude of research designs, which designs should researchers choose for their research? Generally speaking, researchers tend to select those research designs that they are most comfortable with and feel most competent to handle, but ideally, the choice should depend on the nature of the research problem and phenomenon being studied. In the preliminary phases of research, when the research problem is unclear and the researcher wants to scope out the nature and extent of a certain research problem, a focus group or a case study is an ideal strategy for exploratory research. As one delves further into the research domain but finds that there are no good theories to explain the phenomenon of interest and wants to build a theory to fill in the unmet gap in that area, Interpretive designs, such as case research or ethnography, may be useful designs. If competing theories exist and the researcher wishes to test these different theories or integrate them into a larger theory, positivist designs, such as experimental design, survey research, or secondary data analysis are more appropriate. Regardless of the specific research design chosen, the researcher should strive to collect quantitative and qualitative data using a combination of techniques, such as questionnaires, interviews, observations, documents, or secondary data. For instance, even in a highly structured survey questionnaire intended to collect quantitative data, the researcher may leave some room for a few open-ended questions to collect qualitative data that may generate unexpected insights not otherwise available from structured quantitative data alone. Likewise, while case research employ most face-to-face -face interviews to collect most qualitative data, the potential and value of collecting quantitative data should not be ignored. As an example, in a study of organizational decision-making processes, the case interviewer can record numeric quantities, such as how many months it took to make certain organizational decisions, how many people were involved in that decision process, and how many decision alternatives were considered, which can provide valuable insights not otherwise available from interviewees' narrative responses. Irrespective of the specific research design employed, the goal of the researcher should be to collect as much and as diverse data as possible that can help generate the best possible insights about the phenomenon of interest. And here's a presentation by 
Dr. Underwood, entitled Research Problems, Variables, Questions, and Hypotheses, where he digs a bit deeper into uh, the underlying uh, principles of research design. We'll continue our exploration of the research process, including research problems, variables, questions, and hypotheses. We'll look at this from a general sense in terms of how educational research works, and we'll also talk about how it applies to your setting. So a research problem is a sentence or a paragraph that describes the goal, purpose, and direction for the study. Most often it's included in a research proposal or a research report. Uh, some of the characteristics uh, implies the possibility of an empirical investigation. So it talks about what you're looking for and how you're going to find it identifies the need for the research. One of the things that we're going to talk about shortly is whether the research is significant or not. Why is it that the research should be done? Provides focus for the rest of your study. The research problem statement is where the research questions and hypotheses are generated from and often provides a concise overview of the research. So the reader of a research proposal or report can read the research problem and really understand why the research is being done and how the researcher plans to conduct it. Now the text talks about two ways to approach research problems, um, stating them as a what they call research problem, which is sort of an overview, a little more general, and then uh, on the other end of the spectrum, a research statement, which is more focused and talks maybe perhaps more about methodology, more about the audience, more about the sample. These two options are just really two ends to a spectrum, and anywhere in between is just fine. But there's no prescription for a perfect research problem. Often you know a good research problem when you see it. So here are a couple of examples that help to distinguish between a more general research problem and a more specific one. In the general research problem uh, that's stated, the purpose of the study to investigate the attitudes of high school students. Notice that there are some details that are left out. Details that are picked up later in a proposal in research questions, hypotheses, descriptions of the sample, etc. Uh, on the other hand, you could write a research problem like those that are listed um, under specific statements. The study examines the differences between males and females' attitudes, so something about the sample or something about the methodology that will be used to answer the question. Similarly, in the second example, the methodology is much more clear in the research problem. What are the differences? And this is much more like a research question. So the question you really need to answer when writing a research question, or one of the first questions to answer at least, is, is this problem researchable or non-researchable? So since writing a research problem statement is the first step in developing our research ideas, the first question is, can I gather data to deal with this problem? So if we're proposing a study for which the data are impossible to gather, or it is completely unclear what data would be needed to answer the question or problem. Then we need to think about rewording or rethinking our question. So there are some examples there of some problems for which researchability is not a question. What are the achievement and social skill differences between children attending academically or socially oriented preschool program? It's clear who the audience is. It's clear what sort of data we might collect to answer this question. We could actually come up with several different sets of data to answer these questions. Different kinds of achievement data, different kinds of social skills measures. So we could discuss a lot of those things, but it's clear that we could decide on a set of data and gather that data to answer this question. The relationship between teachers' knowledge of assessment methods and their use of them. Clearly, we could look at some survey, some interview, some observation. We can gather some data to answer this question. So on this slide, we look at some examples of non-researchable problems, problems that would need to be rethought or reworded so that they are researchable. Is democracy a good form of government? So how would you go about gathering data to test that result? Should physical education classes be dropped from the high school curriculum? A very vague question like this doesn't make it clear what sort of data we might gather to answer that question. Now we could rework that question. What if we reworked this question so it read something more like, what are the differences between schools who have physical education and those who don't? What are the achievement differences? What are the differences in attendance? Or maybe even more specifically, are there differences in student BMI between schools who offer physical education and those who don't? Now it could be in a question like that, we'll gather data and come up with no statistically significant findings, and that's okay. 
but at least if the question reads that way, we can determine or decide on some data that may help us answer it. So in educational research, we have several sources for research problems. Most of our problems in an applied course like ours, in an applied research sense, come from the first option there, investigators' interests and experiences. And so when you completed your starting where you are document, you thought a lot about the things that you were interested in, the experiences that you had, the types of situations that you are in or will be in. Other sources for problems include applying theory, so taking a theory that exists in the literature already and applying it in a, in a setting in a classroom or a setting as a school business manager or in some other setting. A couple of other sources for research problems, replication of studies. So if a major study is conducted and perhaps the findings are interesting or different than one might expect, or the sample size is lower than uh, you would like, or you'd like to see if the studies are applicable in a different setting, a replication study may be in order. Clarification of contradictory findings. So if a study has findings within it that are contradictory, so two related research questions that have different results. For example, if you were conducting a study comparing students' socioeconomic status with their levels of truancy, and you were hypothesizing that as socioeconomic status went up, as the home income went up, for example, um, students would be less truant, and you found generally that pattern was true as a result of your research, but for some reason uh, the middle income section did not follow that pattern, so that you had uh, from going from low socioeconomic to high socioeconomic, you had a general upward pattern, except in the middle of that pattern you had a little downward pattern where um, uh, students who were middle income might be maybe more truant than you would expect. And so uh, a clarification of those contradictory findings might be in order. Another research problem, perhaps focused more specifically on those middle income kids, um, or a replication of the, uh, of the study altogether may be in order. So at the very minimum, your research problem would specify at least three elements the type of research design, your methodology, the variables of interests, and the relationships between or amongst these variables, so the things that you're interested in looking at, and the subjects. Now one note here about data collection from participants. Many people will write a research proposal in which various instruments will be used to collect data from actual participants. There are, however, studies that are conducted using only data that exists already data that has been collected already. Okay, switching gears a little bit. Within a research problem, as we've mentioned, it's important to identify the variables. Variables are the concepts or characteristics that you're interested in studying. For example, if you are conducting a study comparing the number of years of experience teachers have and their eventual uh, rates of reaching tenure. So perhaps your hypothesis is the more years of experience a teacher brings to the job, the more likely they are to get tenure at that job. The variables that you're interested in then are number of years of experience and whether or not they reach tenure. So in a proposal you would provide either or both of the conceptual and operational definitions. So a conceptual definition, often known as a constitutive or dictionary definition, uses concepts to define a variable. Most often these definitions come from existing literature, from secondary sources like textbooks. Uh, these are good places to find a conceptual definition. An operational definition, on the other hand, is the researcher's definition. It's the researcher's treatment of how they will deal with that variable. So it could be that the researcher provides examples to operationalize that variable. It could be that you provide uh, indications of how you will measure it. So you can see that uh, if we're operationalizing achievement, for example, a conceptual definition might be the achievement is what someone has learned from some sort of instruction, whereas an operational definition may involve uh, the researcher saying, well, in my study, achievement is going to be scores on a standardized test, scores on an ISAT, scores on an ACT test. 
So let's talk about variables a little bit more. There are at least three ways to talk about variables. So three ways to sort of separate the kinds of things that variables may communicate. Um, one is whether a variable is independent or dependent. One is whether they're extraneous and possibly confounding. And one is whether variables are continuous or categorical. So independent and dependent. Independent variables act as a cause so independent variables in quantitative research are things that influence the dependent variable or predict the dependent variable depending on the kind of um, methodology you're working with. A dependent variable is the thing that is affected. So here's some examples. So if you're looking at the effect of two instructional approaches on student achievement, the approach is the independent variable. It is the thing that varies on its own. The supposed effect student achievement is the thing that is dependent on the instructional approach. So it's the dependent variable. Um, use of SAT scores to predict grade point averages. So we are proposing that SAT scores as they vary can be used to predict college freshman GPA. Now notice that in this research question we are not saying that SAT scores cause a difference in freshman grade point averages. So we're not establishing a causal link here. We're trying to see if there's a relationship between these two variables, the SAT score and freshman grade point averages. But because the predicted variable is a grade point average, that's what makes that the dependent variable. In the last example, we ask if there's a difference in satisfaction with teacher performance between students who have disabilities and those that don't. So the satisfaction with teacher performance, we believe, may be influenced by membership in one of those two groups. Because satisfaction is the variable that is influenced, it's the one that's dependent upon the other variable, which is the whether a student is in a group or not, uh, which makes that the independent variable. So we've got our dependent variable and our independent variable. There are also another couple kinds of variables, extraneous and confounding variables, that it's important that we talk about. Extraneous variables are things that affect the dependent variable but aren't controlled by the researcher. So uh, the example given is not controlling for keyboarding skills of students in a, a study of computer-assisted instruction. So suppose you're comparing computer-assisted instruction and standard uh, classroom instruction and you're looking to see if there's a difference in student achievement uh, because of it. If you don't control for the keyboarding skills of the students in the classes and you happen to create groups in which the computer-assisted instruction group is full of students whose keyboarding skills are not so good as those who are in the other group, you might have a negative effect on your study. You may have um, what might normally have been an advantage in the computer-assisted instruction class sort of muted by the uh, keyboarding skill problem that you have in that group. Confounding variables are related to extraneous variables. They also have an effect on your study, but have less to do with the characteristics of your participants and more to do with things that vary according to the independent variable. For example, if you're doing a study comparing two different reading strategies in a classroom, and teacher A is going to use basal readers and teacher B is going to use guided reading, and you're going to compare reading scores to see which approach is more effective. Because those things will be taught by different teachers, the teacher characteristics are confounding variables. So while your results might show that the whole language group did better, because you had two different teachers teach it, the relative quality of the two teachers is a confounding variable. It could be that the phonics teacher was just uh, not such a good teacher, and that's why the whole language group did better. So then there's this important distinction we need to make between the types of quantitative variables, and that is whether they are continuous or categorical. Continuous variables are those that can be measured on a scale and can, and can have an infinite number of values. So test scores, ages, attitude scales, anything that you could put on a scale and pick a number, GPA, staff salary, sometimes zero is included in that scale, sometimes not. Categorical variables, on the other hand, describe categories. So an uh, easy example of that are males and females, socioeconomic status, low, middle, high. Categorical variables, we often say they have levels, and those levels describe those groups or characteristics.
Notice that you could have a variable that could be continuous or categorical. For example, you could use staff salary as a continuous variable where you would use the actual number that is the actual salary of a staff member, or you could categorize them. You could categorize them into $10,000 increments. You could categorize them as low, medium, and high. It depends on what exactly your, your intent is with the study. In most cases, if a variable can be continuous, you would prefer for it to be used as a continuous variable and not to force categorization um, unless those categories are very meaningful. Letter grades are a good example of this. While the actual grade number is important and could be used in a research study, it also may be important to talk about the grades because great letter grades are significant in our education system. So when writing a good quantitative research problem, some of the criteria you can use for evaluating them uh, should be that they are researchable, so you can gather data to answer the question. If you can't gather data to answer the question, then the question is not researchable and probably needs to be reworked. Uh, they should be important. There should be some reason to do the research, some reason to conduct the study. They should indicate the type of research, the methodology that, uh, that you've chosen as the researcher. It should specify who the sample is, from whom will you gather the data. The variables should be clear, and the, the whole problem statement should be clear so that a reader knows exactly what's going on and exactly what you plan to do by reading it. Research questions should stem directly from the research problem. Research questions are very important because they provide the ultimate direction to the research. Just about everything that you do after you write a research question ties back to those questions. Research questions should be clear and concise. They should also communicate the variables just as the problem statements do. They should be consistent with the methodology. So you don't want a research question that is in conflict with the methodology that you've chosen. And the research question should also communicate the methodology. And you write about that in the text and we'll talk about that in the next few slides. Finally, in a quantitative research study, the research questions should give rise to a hypothesis. So when writing your research question, some things to start with. First of all, start with some prompts. In the next few slides, we'll look at some of the different methodologies and some prompts that can get you going if you've chosen uh, to use that methodology with the topic and problem that you're interested in. Try to narrow to one question. It's very common for new researchers to get excited about the topic that they're interested in and try to ask too many questions and answer too many questions in one study. Most good studies have one or maybe a few important questions. And for our purposes, it would be best for you to have one question to research. Take care that the question matches the appropriate methodology as we've discussed. So in the next few slides, we're going to take a look at the different methodologies, first quantitative and then qualitative, and look at what research questions look like that are aligned to those methodologies. At the beginning of each one, we'll talk about a template or a prompt for that kind of research question. And it's not that that's the only way a research question can be written for that methodology, but it's a really good way to get started. Most research questions that align to those methodologies are in a format similar to the one presented on each, on each slide. Then we'll provide a few examples for each one. So the first is experimental. And so you see the template there. An experimental question often looks like, is there a difference in some dependent variable between two populations in some setting? And what's important about an experimental study is, uh, as we've discussed in Module 1, uh, population A and B are determined by some planned interventional event, something that the researcher chooses to do that causes the difference between the two groups. So there are a couple of examples presented here. Um, is there a difference in reading achievement, that's a dependent variable, between students who are taught using one reading method over another reading method? So that population group is the... Um, independent variable, we're trying to see if that independent variable, the planned interventional event, the, the thing that the researcher plans to do, if that is going to have an effect on the dependent variable, which is reading achievement. In the second example, is there a difference in the attitude of taxpayers towards school referendums between those between taxpayers who've watched an informational video and those that haven't? Again, it's an intervention that the researcher is going to try. They're going to create two groups, show one group a video, 
don't show the other group a video and see if there's a difference in the attitudes. Notice that the attitudes are the dependent variable because they are, they are what we are hypothesizing are affected by the independent variable, in this case, the presence of the video or not. A causal comparative question is very similar to an experimental question except that the interventional event is something that happened in the past, something the researcher did not do uh, on purpose to create these two groups. And so the questions look pretty much the same except that the independent variable, the difference between those two groups, is something that's happened in the past. Remember that causal comparative research is often called ex post facto for this reason. In comparative research, we're looking at the difference between two populations that occur naturally, not as a result of some intervention. And so uh, the template sounds like, is there a difference between population A and population B in some variable, possibly in some setting or context? So uh, some example questions. Is there a difference between male or female teachers in teacher performance pay at Rockdome High School? Uh, it's important to note, and I'll mention now, that the particular setting or context is not always part of a research question and is more common in a more applied research question, like many of those that we'll do in this class. It's not required that you do it this way, especially if you're interested in performing research that is a little more generalizable. You might leave that setting or context out. It really depends on the kinds of, the kinds of inferences that you're wanting to make. In correlational research, we're asking if there's a relationship between two variables in some population, in a single group. So whereas the previous examples were comparing two groups on a particular variable, in correlational research, we're interested in one group of people, but we're interested in the relationship between two characteristics of those people uh, or systems. And so, for example, is there a relationship between class size and student achievement in Community School District 99? So. Um, these are two characteristics of the same system, in this case CUSD uh, number 99. And so we're asking, um, as class size goes up, what happens to student achievement? As class size goes down, what happens to student achievement? And the next question, is there a relationship between student mathematics self-efficacy and performance on the math portion of the ACT? So remember, uh, so in this case, the student mathematics self-efficacy is one variable, and the math portion of the ACT is the other variable. Now, one of the things that's important about this is we're not necessarily saying that one of these things causes the other. Um, that's one of the differences, another one of the differences between correlational research and causal comparative or comparative or experimental research is that we're not saying that one thing causes another. We're asking if there's a relationship between the two. So we don't really have necessarily have an independent variable and a dependent variable. We have two variables that we are saying may be correlated. Now descriptive studies are interesting because they could be quantitative in nature and they could be qualitative in nature. It really depends on how you gather the data and what you do with it. So if we gather survey or descriptive data that has numbers in it where we're asking people to use rating scales and then we report um, quantitative measures then then our descriptive study can take on a quantitative flavor. You can also do a descriptive study qualitatively, but it will take on one of the flavors that we'll look at in a few minutes in qualitative research. So we're asking in a descriptive study, what are the attitudes, opinions, practices of some population? So for example, what are the attitudes of teachers in Winnebago County regarding performance pay? Um, what after-school activities do parents consider most important in a particular school district? So these are examples of descriptive studies where you're asking the question, what is the status of some thing, some characteristic about some group of people? And often survey is the tool of choice for that methodology. All right, now that we've looked at the methodologies, the, the next logical thing to do from a quantitative research question perspective is to generate something called a hypothesis. Now, hypotheses are things that uh, exist in quantitative studies and don't necessarily exist in qualitative studies. So if you have a quantitative study, you will have a hypothesis. If you have a qualitative study, you may not. Hypotheses are statements about what you expect to happen. And that expectation may be based on your experience. It may be based on what you find in the literature. It may be just your best guess. Um, they're statements that, that talk about what you think the outcome of your research question will be. So, some examples. In the question, is there a relationship between self-concept and, uh, and achievement in elementary school teacher for math? 
Many times, researchers ask questions because they have a hunch. They have a hypothesis. They have a belief about a particular set of variables. Another question, is there a difference in math achievement between students who use manipulatives and those who do not? That's the question. The hypothesis then, the class using math manipulatives will show significantly higher levels of math achievement. So um, based on the question, the researcher puts forth their, their best guess about what will happen. And again, that's often based on what they find in the research, what they've seen in their practice. And the question and hypothesis are the things that are tested in the study. So why do we use hypotheses? We use them to provide focus. We use them to provide testing. So what we'll find in the statistical analysis chapter is there's a special way to use hypotheses so that you set up a sort of experimental or research hypothesis and a null hypothesis. And that'll make more sense when we talk about the stats. Um, it also helps us to direct the investigation just like the research question does. And it allows the investigator to confirm or not confirm the relationship two types of hypotheses that we'll deal with. One is directional and one is non-directional. So there's some, some examples there. Given the research question asking about the relationship between the average years of experience in a teacher and district student achievement, a hypothesis that is directional might that the higher the years of experience in a district, the higher the district student achievement scores will be. A non-directional uh, hypothesis for a question is there a difference in levels of teacher satisfaction in schools where teachers have paid preparation periods and those who do not? A non-directional hypothesis would be there will be a difference, but I don't know which difference it's going to be. There is a difference in teacher satisfaction. So my hypothesis is there's a difference, but I'm not saying if the difference is going to be a positive difference or a negative difference. Directional hypotheses are much more common uh, and much more useful. Uh, there are times, though, when a non-directional hypothesis may make sense. Some characteristics of good research hypotheses. They're stated in declarative form, so they're not questions. They're consistent with known facts, prior research, and theory, and they're also consistent with the research question from which they come. The research hypothesis should basically be written in the same language as the research question. Often, a research question can be reworded, stated in declarative form, and used as the research hypothesis. Now thus far we've been focused on quantitative research problems, so let's spend a little time and talk about qualitative research problems. Qualitative research problem statements should identify a central phenomena being investigated. So what is it that you're interested in? Um, drug abuse in high schools, teacher burnout, alienation of children with special needs, um, contract negotiations, school board functions, um, processes how people do things, how teachers do things, how students do things, how school business managers do things. Good qualitative research problems and problem statements include a single phenomena. Qualitative research is difficult to do, very complicated, lots of data collecting, rich descriptions of what's going on. And so to investigate more than one phenomena would be too difficult. Um, very often the research problems are open-ended, so they're less concrete and less specific than quantitative research problems. Qualitative research problems evolve over time, and researchers need to be ready for that and planning and expecting for that. The research questions that the researcher starts with may not be quite the questions you end up with in a qualitative research study. And one of the most important parts of a qualitative research study is that there are no predictions. There are no hypotheses. We don't expect one outcome or another outcome. We're neutral, and we go into it with an attitude of discovery. I'd like to discover what's going on in this situation.